0: For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu.
1: You know, who in ancient Israel would care about a 14, 15-year-old girl's thinking? You know, who would would care what what was going on in her mind? Uh, That's one of the things I love about this whole story is that we, perhaps unfairly, we expect the the societies of ancient times to really disregard women and have no use for them. But she is so treasured so often what we've written about when we write about the scriptures. It's like what men did and what men said and all that. She just like elbows right into the center with something we all know. We've all had mothers. Many of us have been mothers. And we understand it. It's not like it's so intellectual, and you can't grasp. It. It's so straightforward. So I love the way that she is treasured in our Christian faith.
0: This is for the life of the world, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a 14 year old Middle Eastern girl about to become a political refugee. Shameful to her family and her betrothed, the kind of person that gets put away quietly. We would ignore her at best. Maybe we would do much worse. It is this despised and oppressed body that becomes pregnant, very full indeed with God. The Logos enters the chaos through her. Word made flesh, burrowing and borrowing and plunging into her womb. It was Mary's flesh offered to Christ's those pluripotent cells reduplicated, feeding off her humble body, the morning sickness, the aching lower back, the blood and waters of delivery, radical particularity, radically unknown. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke wrote, And then that girl the angels came to visit, she woke also to fruit, frightened by beauty, given love, shy in her so much blossom, a forest no one had explored, with paths leading everywhere. They left her alone to walk and to drift, and the spring carried her along. Her simple and unself-centered, merry life became marvelous and castle-like. Her life resembled trumpets on the feast days that reverberated far inside every house. And she, once so girlish and fragmented, was so plunged now inside her womb and so full inside from that one thing and so full, enough for a thousand others, that every creature seemed to throw light on her, and she was like a slope with vines, heavily bearing. This Advent and Christmas season, we thought it fitting to focus in on Mary, Theotokos, that is, the birth giver of God. And today on the show, I'm joined by Frederica Matthews Green, an Eastern Orthodox writer and educator, and author of several books of spiritual formation and the application of ancient Christian faith to contemporary life. I asked her to come on the show to talk about her book, Mary as the Early Christians Knew Her, the mother of Jesus in three ancient texts. In the first half of the episode, we discuss the Eastern Orthodox reverence for Mary and the scriptural account of her life, from the Annunciation and Nativity, to her parenting of Jesus, through to the wedding at Cana and witnessing the unimaginable as her son was crucified, died, buried, risen. In the second half of our conversation, Frederica sheds light on two ancient texts, forgotten gospel of Mary, also known as the Proto-Evangelium of James, as well as one of the oldest known manuscripts that refer to Mary as Theotokos, a very short prayer scribbled on papyrus and known as Subtum Presidium, or Under Your Compassion. Frederica also draws out the beauty of Mary's exemplarity for all Christians, her suffering faith and bright sorrow, the conjoining of humility and magnanimity in her response to God. And so much more. Thanks for listening. Frederica, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Sure. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for inviting me.
0: It's wonderful to see you. And I'm very excited to talk about Mary with you. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Mary is called Theotokos. And mm-hmm. I think the right place for us to start is having you describe that tradition and describe what Theotokos means.
1: Sure. Literally, the word theotokos is comprised of two Greek words, theos, meaning God, of course, theology, Mm. and tokos is the word for giving birth to. So Mm. it means God bearer or God's birth giver or flipped around mother of God. And there's an interesting theological reason for that term. Mm. Back in about the fourth century, 5th century, there began to be a lot of controversy about whether Jesus was fully God. And Mm -hmm. that kind of controversy goes on today, too, of course. Maybe he was just sort of divine, or maybe he was created before the universe, but not really being fully God, or maybe he became God at the uh, baptism Mm -hmm. when the voice of God said, you are my beloved son. So a lot of theories going around about that. And the uh, small orthodox Christians of the time began to really insist on this term, that the, the point being mm. that Jesus was God from the moment of conception. Yeah. That's why the Annunciation was a huge feast in the early church, bigger than Christmas. You know, it was mm. while she was pregnant, he was already God. Mm. And we have a beautiful icon in the Orthodox Church called the Virgin of the Sign from um, Isaiah. Behold, I give you a sign, a virgin will conceive. And it shows Mary praying. And this is the image behind the altar in traditionally in Orthodox churches. Mm. It fills the whole apse. So she's standing there in prayer. She's like the worship leader. And that really summarizes the Orthodox view of Mary. On her torso, there's a disc, and that represents being able to look into her womb. And Mm. within that disc is the infant Christ, his hand raised in a blessing, and all the stars of the universe around her. Mm. And that's the idea which comes forth in many, many prayers, is that the one who created the universe, the master of the whole universe, in some sense, was able to dwell in her womb. That's the meaning of the term Theotokos, the theological meaning of it. And an interesting thing is that, of course, we thought that name for her began about in the you know, fourth, fifth century when the controversies are really raging. But about 1920, they found in Egypt a little piece of paper about the size of, a, about the size of an index card, hmm. a piece of papyrus, and on it was inscribed a prayer. And in the prayer, it says theotoke in Greek, which means like oh theotokos is the vocative. Yeah. It is spoken to her. The this little piece of Epirus dates to
0: 250.
1: Wow. So that early Christians were already calling her Theotokos hmm. and already praying to her.
0: What I'd love to do is move us now toward the foundation for the Christian mm-hmm. understanding of Mary. And where I go in the Gospels is Luke 1 and 2. Yes. And the Gospels are there to present the good news of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But the way God set this stuff up is he worked through an ordinary young woman.
2: Definitely.
0: Yet her response to God is extraordinary and the way that God worked through her is extraordinary. And so I I wonder if you could sort of express, as you understand it, as you experience it, about the presentation of Mary in Luke 1 and 2. And I think the right place to start is, of course, with the Annunciation.
1: Yes, I agree. The Feast of the Annunciation every year is on March 25th. Hmm. So when that rolls around, you might want to visit an Orthodox Catholic or a High Church Episcopal Church and yeah. see what the observance of that feast is like and, and how we handle that.
0: Of Which course, would be around, what, nine months prior to Christmas. <laughs>
1: exactly nine months
0: before Christmas. <laughs>
1: And as I said, it was the bigger celebration yeah. for many centuries. It's yeah. a very theologically significant event. What I love about the Gospel of Luke, about Luke Acts, is that Luke is he's a very good writer. He's the yeah. best writer in the New Testament, yeah. unless it's Hebrews. For your information, the worst Greek writing in the New Testament is the Revelation of John. <laughs> but Luke was obviously very educated. Mm. Our tradition says he was of Greek birth, that he was not Jewish, mm. but he traveled with St. Paul, and he was a fellow evangelizer alongside St. Paul. And he was also a doctor. St. Paul calls him the beloved physician. So with all of this, all of these abilities— Luke decides, and he says at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, Mm. he says he's speaking or writing to somebody named Theophilus, lover of God. That's right. Whether that's a specific person or whether that's like a stand in for his audience, nobody knows. Mm. But he speaks to Theophilus, and he says, There are so many writings about Jesus at this point. So there's already perhaps. Gospel of Mark and some of the lists just of Jesus sayings, Mm -hmm. things like that. There's so much going around that I wanted to give you a good account of everything. It's like he's going to summarize. And he's also done some research. And I think he's done some traveling. Mm -hmm. And that leads us up to Luke 1 and 2 and Mary. I believe that he actually went to Ephesus and interviewed Mary in her old age, wow. when she was living in the home of St. John the Evangelist.
0: That would be something.
1: Wow. Wouldn't it be great? And and my reason for that is that the things Mary tells him, no one else would have known. Right. When the angel appeared to her, nobody else was there. Hmm. And, and then she says, I pondered these things in my heart. Yeah. That's so clearly a first person saying. It's not something Luke would have made up. It's also extraneous to the story, isn't it? It just gives you this yeah. beautiful moment when you see her making a decision. So she tells Luke exactly what happened step by step. And we know in the Gospel of Luke, Gabriel among the angels, he's the one that God uses as a messenger. Mm-hmm. He told told her that she was going to conceive and that it would be by the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. And the Christians, early Christians, studied the scripture so deeply. And they said, oh, that's found in Hosea 3, where it says, you, it is a mountain that is densely overshadowed, hmm. a dense and a dark mountain. And they said, well, that's Mary. That's a prophecy of Mary wow. that should be overshadowed. Hmm. And she says yes in Luke 2. She says yes to this question.
0: But not before it says that she was troubled. And I wanted to ask yes. you about this, that, that she... <laughs> The depiction of Mary here, and I love the personality that emerges from Luke's telling. And and of course, that would make sense that if he was speaking directly to her and receiving the story from her, then that would, Mm -hmm. that personality would come through. Tell us a little bit about, one, Mary's perplexity and Mm -hmm. being troubled, but also the fact that she responds with pondering. You've already brought up the pondering of Mary. She ponders twice in the in in Luke 1 and 2. First yes. first here yeah. upon hearing the angel announce it to her, but then again, after that entire host of angels sings glory to God in the highest, she again ponders and treasures that time.
1: Yes, yes, that's so true. You know who in ancient Israel would care about a 14, 15-year-old girl's thinking? Hmm. You know, who would who would care what what was going on in her mind? Uh, That's one of the things I love about this whole story is that we, perhaps unfairly, we expect the societies of ancient times to really disregard women and have no use for them. Yeah, sadly. But she is so treasured. And any Orthodox church you go in, you'll see the central doors of the iconostasis. Jesus is always on the right and she's on the left Mm. because she's at his right hand. Right. And to walk in, what other religion do you go in? And like the first thing you see is God in the flesh and his mother. It's a woman on display there. So often what we've written about when we write about the scriptures, it's like what men did and what men said and all that. She just like elbows right into the center with something we all know. We've all had mothers. Many of us have been mothers. Mm -hmm. And we understand it. It's not like it's so intellectual you can't grasp. It's so straightforward. So I love the way that she is treasured in our Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And we do see her, as you said, we see her ponder twice in this. Those little stories she tells Luke was, she tells him about the Annunciation. He said, "'Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Mm -hmm. And blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb.'" Full of grace, the Lord is with you, and she's troubled. And then he says, You will conceive, and she's perplexed. Hmm. And perhaps it's more of a straightforward perplexity because she didn't, she knew about the facts of life. She goes on, she tells the story about um, uh, she carries a child into the temple, and Simeon says, uh, A sword will pierce your soul also. Yeah. Something I love about this story is when Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, The child in my womb leaped for joy. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And she says this little hymn or prayer that's about eight or nine lines long. When I went to seminary, everybody was like, Well, of course, she didn't say that. Somebody wrote it later on. But when you think about the phenomenal powers of memory, that people had back there. Yeah. Every single line comes from the Psalms. Every line of the Magnificat is something she would have heard going to worship.
0: That's very interesting. So
1: I think there's I think you can make an argument that it is what she said. Yeah. Now, the, the poignant thing is that she so clearly envisions her child as being the one who finally destroys the Roman rule. It's all about the mighty or cast down, the poor or elevated. Yeah. It's, it's a very classic Jewish understanding of what the Messiah is going to do. Mm-hmm. And looking back, it is poignant because that's not what happened. I think this is why she's perplexed at various points in Jesus' memory. Yeah, And then another very poignant point where he's speaking and they say, your, your mother and brothers are here. And Mark records that they had gone to get him. Because people were saying, he's out of his mind.
2: yeah,
1: He's gone crazy. And just think about her heart. She's, she expected he would be the Messiah. And then she saw him grow and maybe puzzled her. And now they're saying he's crazy. It's hard to believe she wouldn't doubt God at that moment. Yeah, doubt whether she'd understood correctly. When she stood at the foot of the cross, what did she think? I believe that you know, she never renounced her faith. Uh, what could she do except go on following god hmm. but she must have been so heartbroken because she thought he was aiming just at an earthly despot and instead he was aiming at the the master of evil the evil one who had kept all of the human race in his grip because of the fear of death as it says in hebrews 2 yeah that that was the mighty one that was cast down from His throne.
0: So there is Mary with her infant Jesus, right? Yeah. And then there's parenting Jesus. There's becoming Jesus's parent. And there is, I believe the epigraph of your book is comprised by the, the words of St. John of Damascus. And I just yeah. thought this is the a beautiful expression of Mary's becoming the parent of Christ. And it's this. Oh. Her hands steadied the first steps of him who steadied the earth to walk upon. Her lips helped the word of God to form his first human words. And I just think, not only does it lift up Mary in this instance, but it really lifts up the beauty of parenting and the humanity of Christ, the the, the fully human, fully divine, of course, but the fully human nature of Christ. And it really sets off the thoughts in me of walking by Jesus' side throughout his life and throughout his ministry. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about Mary's role, for instance, at the wedding at Cana, knowing Mm -hmm. Jesus so well that she could kind of prod him to start his era of ministry, but also Mary's suffering faith all the way through to Jesus' last days, where there's watching him on the cross
1: yeah um she was his mother and ever since from the very beginning i recently learned something that that i hadn't known that swaddling clothes includes not only wrapping the baby but the idea of a diaper there Mm -hmm. there was no separate diaper right and that she was the one who handled the swaddling clothes and took care of the baby's needs and nursed the babies i will recommend to viewers Google in the catacomb of Priscilla in Rome, Mm. there's the earliest image of the Virgin Mary nursing the baby Jesus. It's the earliest Madonna and child image that we have. And it's so new that people wouldn't necessarily know what it was. So the artist also has a prophet standing next to her pointing up to a star, like, get it? That's who she is. (laughs) Uh, It's it's a very beautiful and natural pose. And the The painter had the brilliant idea of painting them looking at you so that Mary's lifted her head and baby Jesus, like a nursing infant, is pulled away from the breast and he's turned around. And As soon as you look at them, they're both already looking at you. So it's a beautiful image. She had those very physical, you know, matters of caring for Jesus, Mm -hmm. of feeding and nursing and changing and swaddling clothes. And eventually, as that wonderful epigraph says, Teaching him to walk, teaching him to talk. But the word himself, the Lolos himself, learned to form words. I think about how he would have gazed into her face, how he would have loved her, how when she was teaching him to walk, she would do like mothers do to put him down and then move back a little bit. So he would come to her, and I think about how he would have looked at her eyes mm. and looked at her face, how he would have yearned to get back into her arms again yeah. i th- I think that Protestants who diminish or kind of push aside the Virgin Mary, they have good reason for it. There is real excess in the Middle Ages in European Christianity, but they lose so much. And I think if it hadn't been for that bit of confusion, Mm -hmm. that it would have been obvious that she deserves at least as much respect as we give to St. Paul, for (laughs) example, or any of the other men in the New Testament. Well, right. We should love her the way Jesus did.
0: Yeah, I think of my own mom. It's impossible to hear Mm -hmm. what you're speaking. I think this would be for anyone just uh, imagining those early years of, and even if it's not knowing one's mother, being just identifying with the kind of dependence and I'll say Mm
2: -hmm.
0: attachment. And I just think of of how much I relied on my own parents for that kind of thing. And it was hearing you say the words, looking into her eyes and just kind of looking to Mm -hmm. her for not just for support in walking, learning to speak from her words, but also then when Jesus gets older, learning the Hebrew scriptures with her. Mm learning wisdom, growing in wisdom and stature for Christ. And I think the fear is that we, I think folks are worried about construing Jesus as needing to be dependent. And yet his humanity requires it. That's what it is to be human. And and we diminish his humanity and also wrongfully, if we say Mm -hmm. that he was not dependent and needed to at some point learn the scriptures to grow in wisdom, That's part of what it was for Christ to be fully human. I think it speaks volumes more than we could even articulate about about the virtue and the wisdom of Mary in being that kind of leader. This is what's presented is that Mary is really the leader in this this family, Mm -hmm. guiding Jesus through his youth, adolescence, and all the way up to the onset of his ministry. Again, Mary is acting as leader at the wedding at Cana.
1: At the wedding came Cana, yeah. They notice that they have no wine, and she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, essentially, what has that got to do with us? Yeah. That's not our problem. Yeah. And she, it doesn't record anything else that she says to him. Instead, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Yeah. And at, a, at an Orthodox wedding, this is always the gospel that's read. And yeah. my husband often preaches on, do whatever he tells you. And that's Mary's role for us. She's a human being who is prayerful. And when now in heaven, if we ask her help, if we ask her to pray for us, Mm. she's always saying to us, do whatever Jesus tells you. Mm. She always directs us back to him. She doesn't grab any glory to herself. She's just the example, the worship leader the prayerful intercessory Christian. She's all that to us. I wanted to say one more thing about the child-rearing, though, that uh, a friend of mine, Father Patrick Reardon, said. You know how in the Gospel of John, Peter and John run to the empty tomb, and when they go in, they see the shroud that has been discarded, and they also see the face cloth that was put on the face of the corpse before shrouding it, Mm. in a separate place by itself folded up and he asked the question why was it folded because his mother taught him to put things away neatly yeah.
0: <laughs> even after the resurrection he's still doing his yeah. chores <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just think so much about what it what mary's role in in parenting here i i really think it does it helps you to appreciate the sense in which for those of us that hope to do well, for those of us that hope to be excellent, you do need to rely on these people that come before you. And and even in that adult moment for Jesus where he's she's putting him on the spot because she trusts him. She knows that he's ready. And and I think that's um that's just a gift in general. But but it describes something beautiful about their relationship. Maybe one of the most difficult parts of parenting is being faced with the challenge of seeing your own children die. And here we're full circle back with the sword will pierce Mary's soul.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the kind of confusion and suffering that she would experience watching her son and his ministry, and his very life, just fall apart. There is an element, there's, of course, the religious and spiritual element of this is not the Messiah we were expecting. Right. right. But but there is also the anguish of watching one's child suffer, and the kind of great suffering that comes to a parent in that way. So I wonder if we could close out the, the conversation about mary in scriptural context with thinking about Mm -hmm. her playing witness to christ's death because not many were present in witness the disciples had fled it takes a kind of courage and it takes a kind of just ultimate dedication to one's child uh, or one's friend in john's case also witnessing the crucifixion to get to that point i wonder if you could speak to that a little
1: Yes. Yeah. It's uh, horrible to imagine, of course. And the way it's depicted in our icons is that John is on one side of the cross and Mary is on the other. And you see that even all through medieval painting, that arrangement. And around Mary are a lot of other women. The, the women mm. weren't afraid. The the soldiers were not going to attack them. So mm. they were able to stay. And um, on some of them, you can see Mary's small she's like shorter than the other women and they're trying to comfort her get their arms around her and she's always shown looking up and with one hand like she's like she's imploring like she can't get turn her eyes away john is is shown looking down often with his hand on his face like Mm. like just astonished and brooding and horrified. yeah it is it is the worst thing that can happen to a parent to lose a child mm-hmm. it seems excessive or even rude to say any more than that i mean it's thank god not I an understand. experience i've had and so there she was and she had the extra complicating factor of the the angel what the angel had announced to her yeah and wondering is he crazy and why is he wandering around like this she must not have known what the alternatives were except she saw her son not doing what she expected. And she must have just followed him in bewilderment a lot of the time, but always loving him and always her heart reaching out to him. Mm -hmm. The um, poignant thing about the foot of the cross is that as horrific pain as Jesus is in, and as he knows he's facing the final battle when he goes into the realm of death, and he breaks the power of the evil one and sets the righteous free, Mm At that moment, with everything else, with as hard as it was to breathe, much less speak, you know, being suspended by his arms, yeah. he th- was thinking of her. Right, She saw him, but he saw her. He could look at her mm-hmm. and see how much she was suffering. And it must have been another heartbreak for him because he couldn't explain it to her.
0: Yeah. Uh, behold your mother, behold your son, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's um, one of the the reasons it confirms to Orthodox that Mary didn't have any other children. The children she helped raise were Joseph's from an earlier marriage. Mm. And that's why when Jesus died, she wouldn't have any son to care for her. And so he assigned John to take care of her. Mm. And he told Mary, like in reassurance, look, this is your son. This is your son now. Traditional Christians from the beginning have always taken those words to apply to us as well, that we can look at Mary, and she is our mother, that he gave her to all of us in some sense. Mm -hmm. Not to work magic, but to be the person we go to when we need prayer, and we ask her to pray for us.
0: We'll be back in a moment with more on Mary from Frederica Matthews Green. Hello, listeners. We do not want podcasting to be a one-sided conversation. So let's try something fun. In 2022, we're going to roll out some experimental segments for the show, and they involve your voice. First, we're inviting you to office hours. you have a burning question, observation, objection, or just want to know more about a topic we cover? Simply record your question with your smartphone and send us the clip by email at faith at yale.edu. This might surprise you, but a lot of professional podcasts, including ours, use smartphone audio for guests. We'll review your questions every week and include your voice on the show before we discuss either with that week's guest or Miroslav Wolf or a friend of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Second, in keeping with our purpose to help people envision and pursue lives worthy of our humanity, maybe you have a way of articulating an answer to that question that's worth sharing. If so, send a two-minute clip of yourself tackling life's most enduring question, what does it mean to live a life worthy of our humanity? We'll give it a listen and then share with all the other listeners of the show. This is our way of calling out from the podcast cave in hopes of getting a response from outside the echo chamber. Happy recording, friends. Before the break, we just wrapped up an overview of Mary's life and suffering faithfulness as depicted in the Gospel of Luke. And for the rest of the interview, we'll discuss two forgotten texts about Mary, the Proto-Evangelium of James, and the earliest known prayer to Theotokos, Under Your Compassion. I think we should start with what you have called the Lost Gospel of Mary, and it's also known as the Protevangelium of James. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to start there because it tells this, it gives us this different perspective on Mary than Mm -hmm. the traditional gospels do, the canonical gospels. So I wonder if you could describe what it is, the story it tells, and why it was forgotten.
1: Sure. Yes, this is a story that, as I said last time, it's from internal textual evidence. It's clearly not a text originally, but like a folk tale that passed around the Middle East and spread from there. It's been found in eight different ancient languages. People loved it. They shared it everywhere. And it's a story that probably satisfies some curiosity that those who love Jesus— after a while, they'd start saying, well, what was his mother like? And where did she grow up? And what were her parents like? And they want to know the prequel. They want to know the story beforehand. Mm. How historically accurate is this story is a, is a question. One thing we can notice is that it, is, it claims to have been written by James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of the Lord. And he also wrote the Epistle of James. So we can see that the early church said the epistle of James belongs in the New, T- New Testament. This protoevangelion of James, maybe not so much. But it's okay for you to read it just for inspiration yeah. and, and just because of the sweetness of the story.
2: Yeah.
1: So much of it is taken directly from Scripture. The pregnancy, the birth of Jesus, all of that's already in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is amplified, like toward the end, the slaughter of the innocents it makes it clear that Herod is actually looking for John the Baptist. I never thought of that. Hmm. But this was this very famous, miraculous story of an elderly couple conceives, the father is struck dumb, All these things would have made Herod suspect. And so he's after John. And when when Zacharias won't tell him where John is, he actually has John mur- had Zacharias murdered in the temple, which is why Jesus says the blood of Zacharias that was shed between the temple and the high place. We can't claim that it is it is all exactly historical, but much of it is reasonable.
0: And I'd like to ask you about that in particular. I think you describe it as whether it is historically accurate is perhaps less less important than thinking of it as a typological or inspirational story Mm -hmm. about how the early church thought about Mary and how it would amplify and expand on her own biography.
1: Yes, that's true. And I think if you look at a Christian book website today or go in a Christian bookstore, mm-hmm. there'll be a whole section of fiction that's like fan fiction. Right. And the authors are not claiming that every word is historical, but they do believe that what they're writing gives us, increases our love for these biblical characters yeah. and gives reasonable images of what they might have done and tells, teaches us more about the ambiance and the, the context So we can look at it as that kind of a story. At the same time, it may have things that are completely historic. It starts out saying her father Joachim was rich, and he used to go to the temple, and he'd make an offering for himself and also one for the people. Hmm. And you're thinking, that's the first sentence. Who is Joachim? I never heard of him. So it, it assumes you already know something about this prequel material. And it sets Mary in this very clear context where, like the conception of John the Baptist, she has elderly parents there. This is an example of a very pious elderly but wealthy couple. Hmm. And miraculously, Anna becomes pregnant. And the, the part about this story that's most controversial is Anna vows, just as Hannah did when she was pregnant with Samuel, Mm -hmm. if I have a child, Anna says, whether it's a boy or a girl, I will give it to the temple. Mm -hmm. And so when Mary is three years old, they deliver her to the temple, and the Evangelian says she grows up there. Wow! Sort of like, you know how when it describes the story about Simeon speaking to Mary, there's a prophetess, Anna, there, and says she never leaves the temple day and night. She's living in the temple, I, I don't know that there's any historic evidence for this, but there must have been all through history women who prayed to get pregnant and who, like the example of Hannah, said, I will give my child to the temple. And so yeah. the priests are being confronted with all these toddlers, <laughs> you know, what are they? These are weaned children about three years old, And they're being, here you go. There must have been some provision for women and mothers who might well live in the temple and care for these children till they're old enough to help be, you know, little servers during the service, something like that. We don't know whether it's true. uh, Scholars always say, no, Mary was not raised in the temple. But I do wonder about that likelihood that women would have gone on making that vow. They had that example of Hannah. They thought that was what they were supposed to do. Interesting
0: thing. It's very interesting. It also presents a depiction of the contemplative life in that period of Judaism, Mm -hmm. one which is dedicated to fasting and prayer as it describes Anna in the temple. It's fascinating to think of Mary in that context because Mary, as we talked about last time, is this ponderer. She's a contemplative. She responds in a very inward way. And, and of course her, her response is a kind of, that there's, it starts with perplexity, but it's that faith that seeks understanding kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a good example of it. And as she grows up in the temple, probably it's likely that she would have increased in prayer. Mm -hmm. She would have practiced prayer, maybe ceaseless prayer and pondered her life and what was going to become of her and what she was called to do. Mm -hmm. We Orthodox believe that she was able to achieve a degree of devotion and unity with God mm. that her prayer had become so profound that she actually had achieved what we call theosis. Osis is a suffix that means a process, yeah. like osmosis, like we learned in school. Like we have a white cotton garment and you put it in um red dye, the, the dye will creep up by a process of mm. osmosis. That's how you you know, get the, these shadowed garments. Yeah. So theosis means to absorb God, like you were that white garment absorbing the dye. Yeah. Or an example frequently used by the fathers is a piece of metal in a furnace. We don't actually mm-hmm. see that except in movies these days, but yeah. how the, the metal actually takes on all the energy and properties of fire. Yeah. So we believe mm-hmm. that Mary had mastered the art of prayer and of union with God. During those years that she was in the temple praying,
0: that's amazing. I mean, contextualize that with that kind of unity and that kind of absorption. I love that metaphor Mm -hmm. for it—the absorbing of God—in the context of that's leading up to hearing the annunciation
2: Uh, from
0: Gabriel, the angel. It still kind of presents itself as this like there's still an opportunity for surprise. She's not so absorbed that it's not, it's still not an ordinary kind of thing to be addressed <laughs> as such. And so I wonder, sure. so I, so let's draw out a little bit of like the kind of practical spirituality of theosis on its way to annunciation.
1: Yes, yes. And another factor is just maturity as a child becomes a teenager and then an adult. Sure. That what she was able to understand about what she was experiencing.
0: Mm. There's like a purity it, to to the experience of the uh, world in a child. and. And that does, it is kind of drawn out here in in this Gospel of Mary.
1: Mm, it's a very sweet story. And then, as you say, then there's the Annunciation, the appearance of the angel Gabriel who speaks to her, and she's clearly bewildered and i would be reasonable to say yeah. nervous right and she wants to one thing make sure that this really is a divine and not a demonic apparition sure so she she would have a lot going on at that moment and when she understood that she was saying yes to god
2: hmm.
1: you know if you're not certain about anything else it's always safe to say yes to god and so she does hmm. she was Bewildered again by what Simeon said, which was nothing like what she was imagining her son would achieve. And again, when he is lost, temporarily lost because he stays behind at the temple, yeah. she's again, she's bewildered by that.
0: And anxious. It says that she says, your father and I were looking for you in anxiety, great anxiety.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: every parent knows that.
1: Yes. And haven't we all said that to our children at one point or another? Why are you, I told you to stay here. Why are you over (laughs)
2: there? You made my heart stop.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So no matter how much she had absorbed of the presence of God, the the beautiful thing is that God doesn't annihilate us. I think there are other religious traditions where you're even seeking the annihilation. Mm. You want your personality to just evaporate, and you become one with everything. Mm. And something I've been thinking about recently is that there's really no capacity for love, because love is costly. Mm. Because love takes an I and a vow. There have to be two separate things. Mm. There's still your personality there. Mm. It doesn't annihilate that. If it did, you wouldn't be able to love God. Mm. So the, the beauty of personhood is preserved. And you yeah. can relate to God and experience this merging, like like the power of fire moving into a metal sword. You can do yeah. that, and yet they remain distinct. So when Mary goes through these episodes of bewilderment,
2: yeah.
1: I, that's what it is. She knows fully, she wants to be fully released and available to God, and yet she still has her own personality yeah. and her own earthly degree of understanding of what's going on. And there's something really beautiful about seeing that emerging.
2: Yeah.
1: I, I believe she was determined to please God in everything she did, right. especially after her upbringing in the temple or whatever a version of that you want to believe, that she was an extremely devout child Yeah, and determined to do what God asked of her. But that doesn't mean she always understood it. That's right. She had those moments of perplexity because she was still her own person.
0: Yeah. And as we discussed last time in the Magnificat, she's deeply aware of the scriptures, mm-hmm. but has internalized them to a point where she is, whatever uh, magnanimity is there for her, whatever greatness of mm-hmm. soul is there for her, It's it comes out of her humility. It comes out of her willingness to be a servant to God.
1: Christ turns everything upside down. The first becomes last and the, the servant becomes the leader. And all of those things, it's like worlds within worlds and it's just all revolving and the beauty of it is inexpressible. Yeah. It's like the, the stars revolving in the sky.
0: Well, it's inter- I think it'd be interesting to, to hear about the way the Proto Evangelium describes the birth of Christ as well.
1: Yes, yes, that is quite interesting. It tells you just a little bit more all the way along. And Joseph, is you know, as the donkey's riding, he sees Mary, her face, it looks sad, but then he looks again, it looks happy. Mm-hmm. And she says, I see two peoples, one is rejoicing and one is mourning, mm-hmm. which we would interpret as being Israel that was about to be destroyed and the Christian community that escaped and was free.
0: What's interesting to me here, and what I want to pull out is the this Orthodox Tradition that's normally associated with Lent, and that's a bright sadness. There is distress and and sorrow, and then there is laughter and rejoicing and exulting.
1: Yes, yeah. It's rare that we experience this ourselves. It can sound like a a strange idea in as we go through our lives. We don't usually have an event that makes us sad and happy at the same time. But we do experience this in Lent as we are progressing toward the cross with dread. And uh, in high church Anglicanism, as you might know, they on Holy Thursday, they take down all the hangings from the church. They just strip it and just leave it bare. And to be in the pews watching that happen is really it just strikes you in the heart.
0: Yeah, it, often the, the crucifix is covered with a black veil.
1: Yeah, a real feeling of dread and, and some fear and then as you approach it you keep knowing that on the other side there is joy mm. there is joy and there is glory it's it's good for many of us who have painful lives who suffer in our lives suffer from maybe among our viewers not so much from poverty you know or hunger but from shame from loneliness loneliness is huge it's so palpable and so powerful and so deep Our culture makes it worse by telling us that we are successful if we are alone and that all of life is about branching out on your own and defying tradition and Mm. coloring outside the lines and being dramatic and march to a different drummer. Our culture rewards verbally over and over again, be separate, be alone, be yourself. Mm. Nobody can hold you back no obligations to anyone else
0: yeah it's the autonomy Um, it's an autonomy culture of autonomy
1: autonomy thing and it's the autonomy in the uh, economy Mm. it's advertising it is the economy that needs people to separate so they'll buy two of the product instead of one that's right and so they'll buy the newest so they can impress this other person over here
2: yeah
1: and it's just it's the most ridiculous thing it tells Mm. you you can prove you're independent and you think outside the box by buying a mass produced item that everybody is buying because it's fashionable and it's the one everybody's buying. So you prove you're not like everybody else. I think one of the beautiful things about the sorrow we receive on Holy Thursday and Holy Friday is, um, the the good side is it draws us together with others who are sharing the same sorrow. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like a common emotion to bind people together. Mm-hmm. And when we are in church together, we know on those days we know we are such a small subset of the people in our city. Mm-hmm. And we may these may be people that you pass by every Sunday and you don't think about. But when you're there together, that sense of being in a community grows. A sense of responsibility for others to live a, a good life and to treat them well, and that they will do the same for you, that there's a degree of safety you feel mm-hmm. that you don't feel when you're pursuing autonomy. So there's that, the culture comes around you, the community gathers, and it is the common emotion of sadness is one of the things that gives us comfort, paradoxically.
2: Yeah.
1: That, that being bound together is so important. So the, the darkness, the sorrow is leading us toward the light. It's leading us toward a light where paradoxically we're following a leader who was tortured to death. And we know if that came for us, we would agree to be tortured to death. What kind of a brightness is it leading us to? It's one that may conceal great pain and great sorrow. Mm.
0: So when we see Joseph observing in Mary as both distressed and rejoicing, Mm -hmm. it reveals the deeply. Human aspects of living with just the kind of psychological and spiritual tension that you've been describing. One which is very difficult to live with, but seeing it in Mary, even this very devout person, Mm -hmm. we see in Mary the capacity to feel both of these things at the same time both anxiety and Mm -hmm. sorrow both a a kind of brightness and rejoicing. And that's a complex feeling and seeing it embodied in, in a person that we revere and, and who is an extraordinary human being like Mary, there's a way that that kind of lifts the rest of us up.
1: It does. It gives us an example to follow. And it's again, something that in feminine or motherly experience that every mother who's given birth, goes through that intense pain, that searing pain, but the joy on the other side. The joy of holding your baby is like one of the highest joys you ever have in life, and the pain you experience in a medication-free childbirth anyway, Mm -hmm. which I used to teach childbirth classes. Yeah, yeah, had three unmedicated births. So I know what I'm talking about. It is for women a very stark example of sorrow and joy at the same time that your baby's coming. This is the only way you're going to get your baby, Yeah, but it hurts so much. I don't know if men have something parallel to that, maybe fighting in wartime where your ideals are very high, but the pain of being shot or something like that.
0: I don't know. I think um, it is a unique experience. And wow. having observed my wife also deliver four babies, medication-free. Wow. I I just had to be humbled by that. And I love that you brought this aspect of it up because it is one of those amazing parts of life that I can't claim to have experienced myself, of course, but I've witnessed it. And that bright sorrow, that 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 joyful distress, the intermixing of both of those feelings in the birth of a child, and then for it to be amplified in the, this specific case of Mary and Jesus, where really we're at the center point of human history uh-huh. we are at this this inbreaking of the incarnation it's it is so wonderful it's ecstatic and it's apocalyptic and it yeah. <laughs> it is also just well it's the most humble of circumstances
1: it is it is that's one of the things you notice in iconography is that when Mary is being born. The icons show how wealthy Anna was, so she 's got mm. this elaborate bedroom and lots of pillows and lots of servants and people are bringing her food and yeah. it's and, and Joachim is always peeking in like shyly it 's very uh-huh. cute. but to contrast that with the birth of Jesus, yeah, in a cave all alone and how terrifying that must have been, so far from her own mother you 'd want to be with your mom. Yeah. With, she had no one with her except joseph yeah so it's in ways like the the nadir the worst example of what birth can be like and then also the the height and sometimes the height is hidden within the depths
2: yeah
1: there are many other ways than childbirth that you can have sorrow and joy at the same time but I, i think yeah this one birth in all of human history is certainly the one that's the the pinnacle
0: so i wonder if you could then just like wrap up our discussion of that with what do you pull practically or uh, perhaps with respect to one's christian spirituality from the protoevangelium
1: yeah i think one of the main things i gained from the protoevangelium and reading it closely was i felt so close to the first century christians mm. our lives are sort of attenuated now we're yeah. insulated we're air conditioned mm. it it brought home to me how very graphic we would say how very gritty and earthy their lives were. yeah. And the joy they felt in Mary. I mean, in so many ways, it was like I got to live a first century Christian life while I was reading it, yeah. putting myself into that story. But the thing that, that we need to carry away is they loved Mary so much. The whole idea, at least the orthodox view, is that Mary is not dead. She's alive. She's praying before the throne of God. All the saints are before the throne of God right now. Mm -hmm. And we can ask them to pray for us. It's not like we lean on them or we argue or we try to have a conversation. No, it's just like sending an email. It's Mm -hmm. like sending, um, putting a letter in the post box. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the medium. It's the word pray that that t- tumbles yeah. people mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Prayer is a medium of communication like email or text or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And when we pray to God, you put in that envelope, you put worship. And when you pray to Mary or another saint, you put a prayer request. Yeah. That's all we ever do. We send her prayer requests. Mm-hmm. And from the results we see, we know that her prayer is strong. Just like you might have a friend who is a powerful intercessor and When you've got him on your team, you feel better. You feel like now it's going to go through. Hmm. She's just a very great prayer warrior, we would call her.
0: I think that's a wonderful segue to talk about this little scrap of papyrus that was found in 250 in Egypt. Please introduce that to us. And I would love for you to read the text of it as well.
1: Under your compassion, we take refuge, Theotokos. Do not overlook our prayers in the midst of tribulation. But deliver us from danger, O oh, only pure, only blessed one. That's the prayer. Quite short, isn't wow, it? It's yeah. just a sentence long. And one of the things I love about it, and something you, you tend to skip over, I didn't think of at first, is the way it begins, under your compassion, that it's not asking Mary to do something out of her power. It's yeah. saying, we know you love us. We know you care about us. That's why we're coming to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it made me think that if you if someone really cares for you and is compassionate toward you, mm. that is a safer refuge than any contract you could have them sign, <clears throat> any promise you could have them make. There's nothing you can have from another person that is as powerful and reliable as their compassion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you have a stake in their heart, in a sense, that they have a stake in you because they care about you, mm. under your compassion is the safest place you could be with any person, any human being. Yeah. So it's kind of sweet and, and perplexing that already this early, they know Mary has compassion on them, mm. And before they make their request, they remind her, we are coming under the shelter of your compassion. We know you care for us. Under your compassion, we take refuge. And then it just says, here are our prayers. We're in tribulation. Don't forget about our prayers. We have so many prayers to look at. Remember our prayers, and by your prayers, deliver us from danger. It's not that they believe she has the power. It's that they know by her prayers they're confident. Mm -hmm. It's like, with you praying for me, I know I'm going to be cured of cancer. It's like, your prayers are so great. Mm -hmm. I I know I can count on that. Deliver us from danger is the request we make of her. We don't ask her to, to give us salvation. Mm-hmm. We don't ask her to forgive our sins or make sure we get into heaven or something like that. We can pray for her to strengthen us as we try to battle sin in our lives and grow toward theosis. We can certainly ask for that, but it's uh, the only thing we put in that envelope is a prayer request.
0: I love this image of refuge beneath her compassion in times of trouble. I mean, it's it's in these moments of turbulence. And I think the world is experiencing that these days True. deeply. It's a very divisive and troubling time. It feels, even recently, renewed anxiety in our country over, I mean, whether it's political battles or school shootings or or just simply of the, the kind of weariness that trying to get through a pandemic and trying to beat this and trying to just exert so much. There's a lot of striving, but it's yeah. also a very strident time.
1: Striving and strident and unfortunately individualistic, to where each little atom is striving separately. Yeah. Often against others instead of together with them. Yeah. So our loneliness exacerbates all of this and makes it much harder to deal with in a healthy way. Under your compassion, we take refuge. If we can imagine coming to Mary and being consoled by her, knowing she's praying for us, even if things aren't going to turn out well. Mm -hmm. Things looked like they weren't turning out well for her a lot during those years of Jesus' ministry, and she persevered. She knows something about perseverance.
0: So one of the immediate references that I go to when I read the first words of that prayer under your compassion are, are it's Jesus's own mm-hmm. lament over Jerusalem. He says in um, Matthew, this is Matthew 23,
2: mm-hmm.
0: 37, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing and i just think that spirit is really present there and mm-hmm. i in just as we have discussed over over two episodes worth of, of talking about mary and her relationship with jesus it seems like jesus must be thinking about the, the way his own mother would yeah. bring him yeah. under her wing under her compassion and and learn that from her and and desire to share that kind of experience of Seeking refuge in that kind of love, especially in times well, of trouble,
1: we're made that way, aren't we? I mean, um newborn babies are different from any other kind of mammal baby because of trying to seek out the mother. Yeah. if they show a newborn eighteen hours old images of two ovals and one has just geometric shapes in it, and one has two dots where the eyes would be. If they study the baby, he will always be looking at those two dots. He would just train his eye. And he's never seen a face before. Yeah. So we're made that way. We're made to seek out help from another person. Yeah. And to be gathered, consoled, as as one of the Psalms says, like like a child on his mother's breast. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask great questions about the meaning of the universe. I'm like a child on his mother's breast. Yeah. We all know that from experience to some extent. And that's what we need, especially in a time like this. I would hope people would just give it a try. She's not a demigod. She's a person. <laughs> she loves you. She's your mother.
0: <laughs> Frederica, I'm so grateful for your time in guiding us through this, these beautiful texts. More than texts, there's a tradition behind it. And of course, there's a person behind it and uh, a person that is certainly a lightning rod Mary has been the source of much controversy, but is also clearly the source of much, much devotion to God and, and really a beautiful witness to faithfulness and humanity in very troubling Mm -hmm. times. And so I'm so grateful to you for guiding us through thinking about Mary.
1: Thank you so much, Evan. Thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed it.
0: center for faith and culture at yale divinity school this episode featured author frederica matthews green production assistance by martin chan nathan Jowers, and logan ledman i'm evan rosa and i edit and produce the show for more information visit us online at faith.yale.edu new episodes drop every saturday sometimes midweek if you're new to the show welcome friend Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app and we'd love your feedback. Ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts are particularly helpful, but we're just as happy to hear from you by email at faith at yale.edu. We read each comment and do our best to respond and improve the show, bringing you the people and topics that you want to hear. And if you're a regular listener, it's a huge honor that you stick with us from week to week. So I'll ask you to step up and join us. Help us share the show. Behind those three dots in your podcast app, there's an option to share this episode by text or email or social media. If you took a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world not only would you be supporting the show you'd be sparking up a great conversation around stuff that matters with people that matter thanks for listening today friends we'll be back with more this coming week